This is the fourth installment in our series on biblical soul care, which is subtitled Practical Considerations in One Anothering. And thus far in our series, Pastor Aaron has started us off by laying a foundation of biblical soul care. Then the last two weeks, Dale Johnson has covered the mission of biblical soul care. He told, taught us about the nature and the goal and the method of what is just basic discipleship. And sometimes it comes out formally in biblical counseling, but it's just one another in its discipleship. And next week, our topic is on the progressive sanctification, the here and now of Christian living. And one element of progressive sanctification is what we're going to cover this morning, which we've titled, Help Me to Change, the Biblical Process of Biblical Change. Understanding how to change is of great interest to us. We all wish to change. We'd wish for greater devotion to God's Word, maybe more exercise or better food choices regularly. There might be parents here that experience difficulties in parenting as they see their own patterns of impatience, inconsistencies, tendencies to be lazy or anger. Maybe there's a man who has given himself to lustful thoughts and indulges in inappropriate motives, movies or video games or internet usage or other behaviors, or someone who binges on alcohol, or a man who periodically has outbursts of anger that disrupts relationships, or even a married couple who, where there is no hatred or abuse, but it's, there's a mediocre marriage and love is lacking and they're just cooperating. You try to change, you might even say, I've tried everything, but nothing seems to work. And how would you even define what something working would look like? You might have changed in some areas, but there are other areas of life where you just haven't seemed to gain much traction yet, and let alone the thought of gaining victory over that sin. We all wish to change. But what do we mean by change? Well, first, the change that we seek is unique. The change that God causes his, in His people and the change that his people seek in the church is unique because it is biblical change. It's not about man or self. It's not, I want to be happier or feel better about myself or to be more comfortable or more handsome or more popular. It's not about changing our circumstances, though that's often what we think of. We want to change those circumstances. But it's the change that we need, that we seek, and that we want to help other believers in the church with. That change is God-centered. And in 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul writes that the goal of his instruction was that his hearers would have love from a pure heart. And in Colossians 1.28, he says that he proclaims Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. We want to live for the glory of God despite our circumstances. And that will require changing some things along the way. There's work to be done on this earth, and God has revealed to us in His Scripture His plan for how people are to live out their days. God doesn't just zap us to heaven after the point of salvation, does He? There's work to be done here. So the change that we seek is unique. And the, change, the biblical change is also progressive. Biblical change is developing into greater Christ-likeness in the entirety of our person. In our inner person, it, it's in our thoughts and our desires and our affections. And those flow out from our heart 
to behaviors in our outer person. From the point of salvation onward, believers in Jesus Christ are progressively growing in godliness. Dale mentioned 2 Corinthians 3.18 this morning, and it's right here. This is a key verse for us. It says that we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Believers are progressively being sanctified. And that growth in godliness occurs at all times. The Holy Spirit never stops working in our lives. He's working during good times and also during difficult times. Even if or when our difficult circumstances do not change. And yes, even in the midst of them. That growth in godliness occurs as the Holy Spirit continues His work of conforming us more and more into Christ's image by His Word through the Holy Spirit. And He does that either until we go to be with Him in heaven forever or until Christ comes again, whichever comes first. And as we think of Christ's return, it's so comforting to hear again, isn't it, and to think that as we struggle even now in our flesh, that against the temptations of our own hearts, that this body of death will be delivered through God, by God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But in the meantime, our portion is to live out our days as God has called us to do and to serve His purposes. So biblical change is unique, it's progressive, and biblical change is also God's will for us. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says that, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Romans eight twenty eight says that all things work together for, God, for good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. God's will is to conform His people into the image of His Son, and if He has saved you, you can rest assured that He is doing it. Philippians 1.6 says that, And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Next, biblical change is hard. It is hard to change, and can we just say that up front here and admit that? At the same time, some areas of our lives are radically changed by God and we see immediate growth. God can and does grant immediate altering of some desires and passions such that victory over sin seems instantaneous. And we're thankful for God's grace in those areas. But we also know from Scripture that this is not the case in all areas, and we've definitely seen this in our own Christian experience, haven't we? So why is it so hard to change and grow? We don't need to spend much time here, but we'll acknowledge that there are still vestiges of our pre-conversion flesh that remain. This is the concept of indwelling sin that Paul talks about in Romans 7, where he illustrates his own struggle against sin in the flesh. And just to highlight verse 19 of Romans 7, he says, For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. We've all felt that. I'm sure. Change can be hard because of the habits that we form. Those vestiges of sin can be facilitated or ushered in by way of habits. Habits are real, and in God's goodness, we don't have to think very hard or focus too hard about good and helpful actions that we do every day, like waking up or driving your car, well, waking up 
sometimes that's, <laughs> that's hard. Um, driving your car, getting dressed, making your bed. We also don't have to think or focus too hard about bad or unhealthy or sinful habits that we actively develop. And yes, we are actively developing them. Though at times it can feel like they're creeping up on us, like the tide on a warm summer's day at the beach. But despite those habits and indwelling sin, God's Word is authoritative, it is powerful, and it is sufficient to change us. And this gives us hope. Isaiah in uh, Isaiah 55, 10 through 11, he says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Do you believe, Christian, that God's Word is authoritative and powerful and sufficient to go out and accomplish all the purposes for which He sends it in your life? May we all grow in this belief so that we increasingly are able to put its truths, put God's truths into practice in our lives. So biblical change is also Spirit-enabled, and we'll touch more on this uh, later, uh, shortly here. So far, we've seen that some descriptions of what biblical change is, that it's unique, it's progressive, it's God's will for His people. We've acknowledged that it, it can be hard and that it is Spirit-enabled. But next, I want you to see the position for change. I've hit on this a little already in the language I've been using, but I want to emphasize this point because it must be made emphatically clear that without Faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11, 6. That is to say that salvation in Jesus Christ is the prerequisite for biblical change, for change that pleases God and glorifies Him. So as we think about this, why does salvation position a person for biblical change? That's because salvation immediately results in union with Christ for the one who is saved. And it is union with Christ that positions the believer to begin to change and grow. Understanding your union with Christ is key to your growth and godliness. Romans 6 lays this out for us. And grab your Bibles with me, if you will, and turn to Romans chapter 6, and we'll look at the first 11 verses. In chapter 5, Paul has, been, has just finished describing that salvation is by grace, apart from works, and that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul anticipates the objection that would suggest then that, well, why work to be holy since the more we sin, the more God's grace would be put on display. So follow along with me in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In verse 2, we see that the gospel, rightly understood, promotes holiness. We can't just keep going on living a life that is characterized by sin once you are united to Christ. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? 
We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. Stop there. Your old self has died in union with Christ. And we'll keep going in verse 4. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. The believer is a new person, united with Christ in His resurrection, so that he too would walk in newness of life. And what do we know? Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. We have been set free from slavery to sin to serve righteousness. And verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is true of every believer, that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then verse 12 picks up and continues. We won't read it, but Paul is saying that now live in light of who you are in Christ. It's important to notice what he's not saying here. Union with Christ does not mean that we no longer sin. We've already talked about that from Romans 7, about indwelling sin. The point here is that the power of sin over you has been broken at conversion, at the point of conversion. And now, once in Christ, we are to live a life that is not characterized by sin, but rather to live a life that is characterized in an increasing way by faith and repentance. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It is death to sin and being raised to life in Christ that enables a person to, to now be able to live their life according to their new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.15 states that Christ died for all of His people so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ died to save us, to change us, and to sanctify us, and to reorient our disordered worship so that we would rightly worship Him above all else. Next, growth in godliness, growth in biblical change is necessary. It is necessary. Once a person is saved and in the faith, growth and change in that person's life is a must. And this is the crux of the lordship salvation debate. And I'm, all I'm going to say here on this is, on this point is to draw out what Peter says in, to the dispersed Christians who were living under intense persecution for their faith. And he says it to us too in 1 Peter 1, 14-16. He says this, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
Notice that the emphasis on being holy is in all their conduct. This is a command for believers. It is necessary that a Christian not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance because God is holy. We too are to be holy. Kevin Zuber, a professor of theology, writes that a genuine believer, one who is truly in union with Christ, will demonstrate that union by increasing lifelong practical holiness. So we've talked about the position for change, and now let's transition to the power to change. The power to change. And as we begin with this, we wonder what is the power to change, and we'll start with what it is not. It's not behavior modification. One example in Scripture that indicates this is that in uh, Paul writing to the Colossians in chapter 2. In chapter 2, he's encouraging and commanding them in verse 6. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. They have been firmly rooted, and they were being built up in Him and established in their faith, in verse 7, and they were susceptible to being taken captive through philosophy and empty deceit, and they needed to be warned. Then Paul lays out for them their union with Christ so wonderfully in verses 9 through 15 which very much resembles what we just went through in Romans 6. And then he says this in Colossians 2, verse 20. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Did you hear that last part? That following rules, especially even strict ones, that have an appearance of wisdom are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The power to change is not the mere following of rules or of changing behavior. The real power to change is the biblical gospel message of Jesus Christ. Milton Vinson, an author and pastor of the book, and wrote the book that is titled A Gospel Primer for Christians. It's in our book nook out there in the back. He says this, Outside of heaven, the power of God in its highest density is found inside the gospel. This must be so, for the Bible twice describes the gospel as the power of God. Nothing else in all of Scripture is ever described in this way except for the person of Jesus Christ. Such a description indicates that the gospel is not only powerful, but that it is the ultimate entity in which God's power resides and does its greatest work. Have you felt impotent to change? We are, apart from the gospel. The message of the gospel is where God's power resides and does its greatest work. The two references that he mentions there is Romans 1.16, and you know this verse that says, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel." For it is the power of God to, for salvation to everyone who believes. And also, 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jerry, Ridge, Jerry Bridges wrote about the importance of preaching the gospel to yourself every day for sanctification. And have you heard this saying, that the gospel that saves is the same gospel that sanctifies 
And it is the gospel message as found in God's word that the Holy Spirit then, as the agent of change, applies to our hearts. And this changes us from the inside out. On the Holy Spirit, I'll highlight one passage, and we've touched on it already, 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one, to glory, from one degree of glory to another. And this last part, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It is the Spirit who does the conversion, the, change, the, the sanctifying in our lives. This verse describes the Christian beholding the glory of the Lord. And where do we define that? Where do we find that glory of the Lord? We find it in the gospel message, which is found in God's Word. And as we read it, as we meditate on it, as we memorize it again and again, we, as we behold it and we live it out, the believer is transformed more and more into Christ by the work of the Spirit applying God's Word to our hearts. And as we read and as we study, we grow in our understanding of how, we, we will grow in our understanding of how much Christ loved us. And that then becomes more than just words on a page. And our growing understanding of Christ's love for us motivates us to live out in greater obedience to Him. And so as we think about biblical change and the power to change, we also want to think about the motivation to change. We've referenced 2 Corinthians 5, 14 already, but just I'll read it again. But when I do notice that it is Christ's love of us, not our love for Him, but His love of us that controls us, that urges us to action, and that Christ's love of us is manifested in the message of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 says that, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And verse 15, and he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So there's a succinct summary of the gospel, and then a purpose, that we might no longer live for ourselves, but that we would live for him. Christ's fully obedient life, and then his death on the cross was for a purpose. Not just so that we could live with him forever, that will happen, but that we would live differently now. No longer for ourselves, but we would live, and the verb live is in the present. It's active. It's a, it's a verb. We're to do that now. It's presently. We're, it's present. It's an active verb. And that motivates us to do our part. Christians are to be increasingly motivated from the heart to please God because of God's love, because of Jesus' love for us. And so we've talked about the position for change and the power to change, but how do we actually change? What is the process of biblical change and what is our responsibility in it as we are growing in godliness? Let's look at biblical change from two different perspectives, and both are true. I've just emphasized the power and the importance of the gospel message to cause change, but the whole of Scripture presents a balanced understanding of change that includes that, that describes that God is progressively sanctifying us. And at the same time, we participate in our own sanctification. Progressive sanctification is next week's topic, and so I won't go deeply into that at all here, but I will highlight one passage in particular that is the key, that is a key passage for biblical change. And it is, grab your Bibles and turn to Philippians 2, 
We'll look at verses 12 and 13. Paul is calling for humility within the church, and he has just penned the wonderful passage describing Paul's, the perfect, I'm sorry, the perfect example of the humble mind of Christ when he left heaven and became a man, and he perfectly obeyed the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross, and he was highly exalted and given the name Lord, which is above every name. Then in verse 12, he says, therefore, so because of who Christ is and what he has done, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verse 12 tells us man's part, that we are to work out our own salvation, to live it out with fear and trembling. Verse 13 tells us God's part. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It is God who gives you the desire and the ability to obey Him, and to will and to work, the desire and the ability. Do you desire to obey God in some area of your life? That is from God. Have you been able to obey Him at all, ever? Even that, even your ability to obey is also from God. And as we've turned our focus to focus on the human side in sanctification, we remember that any good found within us is from God, and that every time we fall short, it is because of our sin. And so if it's God who sanctifies us, and yet we participate in that sanctification, what is the part that we play in the process of biblical change? It starts by aligning with Scripture who we value most and what we are pursuing in life. It can be easy in our self-serving, I want it my way now, uh, convenience culture for this to be off base, even in Christians. And we need to guard diligently against this as we seek to grow in godliness. Pursuing a life of comfort and ease with little difficulty often floats quickly to the top of our daily desires. Stuart Scott, a professor of biblical counseling, writes in his book titled Killing Sin Habits that a proper emphasis is needed between what we are pursuing and what we are trying to stop. But we all must also determine a proper priority among all the right pursuits. If not, we will end up doing things in our own strength and become legalistic and give up. What he's saying here is that it's right to pursue godliness and to sin less often. But if we focus too much, and notice the overemphasis on, if we focus too much on stopping the sin, we will lose sight of Christ. And this is critical. When we lose sight of Christ, we begin living to keep a set of rules. And when that happens, a right worship of Christ has become disordered worship. And that is precisely where we need to change and grow. So what does the Bible say that should be our priorities? Romans 13, 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Notice the order. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and then make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so to finish up our topic, I want, to gra I want to, you to grasp three proper priorities in the pursuit of change. Three proper priorities in the pursuit 
of change. And first, our utmost and first priority is that we would have a growing understanding of the surpassing value of Christ. Christ is of utmost value to the believer. Philippians 2, 6, 6 to 11 says that He is the one who left heaven and sacrificially gave His life in humility for our behalf. 1 Peter 2, 23 says that when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. He never sinned. But He continued, what? Entrusting Himself to God who judges justly. And speaking of Christ's crucifixion, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that you were bought with a price. When we sin, we are worshiping something other than God in the moment. And we need to grow in recognizing this and confessing what we have been worshiping or treasuring or pursuing. We need to focus where our disordered worship has been focused. In Ezekiel 14, 3 through 5, of Ezekiel, who worshiped and trusted in things other than God, God says, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols. God is after the, defect, the affection and the devotion of our hearts, and He wants to restore our disordered worship wherever it, it is found. Finding that disordered worship comes by regularly engaging in God's Word in some form, reading it, listening to it in audio format, or memorizing or meditating on it. John 17, 17 says, Jesus is praying to the Father in His high priestly prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. John 16, 8 says, God's word sanctifies us through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to confession. And as the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, we are to be regularly confessing. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confessing sin means that we say the same thing that God says about sin, to acknowledge that we have fallen short and violated His commands, and agree with Him that it is evil. And at the same time, believers can be, and we ought to be, remembering that we are being thankful, knowing that in Christ we are already saved. Which brings us also to repentance. And as we are to be repenting, and confession, which we just mentioned, is one component of repentance. One biblical language dictionary defines repentance as, as, a cha as changing one's life based on a completed change of attitude and thought concerning sin and righteousness. Said another way, repentance is a change of the mind so complete that it results in a change of direction. A change of mind so complete that it results in a change of direction. Repentance includes putting on the right action. And Paul commends the Thessalonians, those in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 1.19, because they had turned to God from idols. And 2 Corinthians 7.10 and following teaches that repentance flows from godly grief, and it includes confession of sin and a renewed commitment to follow or to keep the command. Another priority 
in the pursuit of change is walking by the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. If we could walk fully by the Spirit, we would never sin. We would actually be loving Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That life is coming soon, but it is not here yet. For now, the more we are walking by the Spirit, the more we will be living for Christ and resisting sin. A similar passage to Galatians 5.16 is Colossians 3.16, which helps us to know how to walk by the Spirit. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We need to be dwelling often, richly, abundantly, generously, in great amount on the Word of Christ. So much so that as God's Word increasingly become, is becoming as familiar to us as our very own dwelling in which we live. Richly dwelling on the Word of Christ has a purpose. It renews the mind in order that we may be wise, ready, and willing to teach and admonish one another. That one another interaction is key here. This, this dwelling on the Word of Christ will include filling our hearts with an overflow of worship in the form of singing with thankfulness from our hearts to God. A key component in this passage is the interaction and focus of doing spiritual good for one another. This other's focus even helps us in our times of great despair. And it helps us to combat what Martin Lloyd-Jones called morbid introspection. As we lift our eyes off of ourselves and we get them on to another person for the purpose of serving them. Of this verse, John MacArthur says that the Holy Spirit fills the life controlled by His Word. This emphasizes that the filling of the Spirit is not some ecstatic or emotional experience, but a steady controlling of the life by obedience to the truth of God's Word. Walking by the Spirit also includes mortification of sin. But we must, we must also be putting to death the deeds of the body. This is the Ephesians 4.22, putting off of the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It is the Spirit who empowers Christians to be putting his, a Christian to be putting his sin to death and increasingly, in an increasing way, over the course of his life. John MacArthur adds that the means that the Spirit uses to accomplish this process is our faithful obedience to the simple commands of Scripture. Walking by the Spirit also includes renewing the mind. It is through letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly by engaging in God's Word that our minds are renewed. Romans 12.2 informs us that it is the renewal of the mind through Scripture that transforms our lives away from the world so that by testing we may discern what is the will of God and then live it out. Paul in, in 2 
Corinthians 10.5 of the nature of spiritual warfare says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. A third priority in the pursuit of change is the putting on of the righteous alternative to the sin that you want to put off. The putting on of the righteous alternative to the sin that you want to put off. This priority is the obedient putting on of Ephesians 4.24 of the new self which is created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I mentioned earlier that repentance is a change of mind so complete that it results in a change of direction in a behavioral response. This is the putting on, the turning, the changing of direction, turning away from idols, turning to God. This is the obedience to Christ to which we are called. This is the decision that a believer makes in the moment of temptation to obey God's commands. An obedient decision is motivated out of a heart of love with gratitude because of what Christ has already accomplished for you. Changing biblically requires putting on the new man, the new self, the obedient response. Change does not take place by merely stopping the disobedient response. Growth in godliness is not merely a restraining of or a putting off of the evil that is inside of us. It includes that, but it is also a putting on of obedience to God's commands. This is the part of sanctification that we participate in from Philippians 2.12 as we work out our salvation in the daily choices that we make every day. In Ephesians 4.25-29, Paul lists four specific examples of the put-off, put-on combination for us to see there. In verse 25, put off falsehood and put on truth-telling. Verse 26, put off sinful anger and put on a resolved peace that trusts in God. Verse 28, we're to put off stealing and to put on honest work that you may have something to give to another who is in need. Verse 29, we're to be putting off corrupt speech and to put on gracious speech that builds up. And then he gives a list of additional put-offs, followed by several put-ons in verses 30 and 32, and then also in the first two chapters of first two verses of chapter 5. And so to wrap all this together, we are only able to desire obedience and to make obedient decisions because God is working in us. This is where Philippians 2.13 ties in, that it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It is critical to emphasize here that we are constantly dependent on the Holy Spirit to be doing our part, for us to be doing our part. We could say it like this, that all obedience on our part is spirit-enabled. And lastly, any obedience is nothing for us to boast about. It should, not, it should never even be a point of pride. Otherwise, we'll be acting like the Pharisee who in Luke 18 prayed, he pridefully prayed, I thank you, God, that I am obedient, that I am not like all these other sinners, especially like that tax collector over there. Thanks be to God that He has saved us and that He is transforming us 
more and more into His image. Because if sanctification were left up to us, we would surely lose it. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we love You and we love Your Son, Jesus, because He alone is the one who fulfilled and met Your demands for holiness and justice. May we increasingly hear these words and may Your Spirit apply them to our hearts that we would obey them and grow in our pursuit and, our, and see in the surpassing value of Your Son, Jesus Christ. We need you every day, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.